That last verse that we have been singing together really expresses in praise many of the things that we have been learning over this past while as we've been looking at 1 Corinthians 15 together. And I just want to say a word of thanks to all of those who have been helping us in our worship of God at this time. It is it's such a privilege to have many people in the life of our church who can lead us so well in the praise of God, especially at the moment in Dean's absence, that we continue to pray for Dean and for his father and his illness, and as Dean seeks to support him. And Kirsty, thank you so much for what you have done today, and all of those who have been helping us this evening. That is so much appreciated. One of the things that I love about being a minister is that I get to meet people from all kinds of backgrounds, and I suppose I've got an excuse to get into conversation and begin to find out about their lives. And when you speak to people, you find that people lead interesting lives. I'm always interested in the jobs that people have done in the past or the work that they're doing now. And I like to ask questions about that and find out what it is that people are doing. When I was an assistant in White Abbey, I I was visiting a man who was very ill, and I, I got to see him a number of times. And he was a really interesting man. He was a retired engineer. He had worked for a number of years in South Africa, and he'd lived in South Africa because he was engaged in mining for gold and diamonds. And I asked him, did he have any of the gold or diamonds? Did he manage to get any? And he said, no, it doesn't work like that when you're working in a gold mine or a mine where you're you're getting diamonds. But he made the point that compared to coal mining, which is the type of mining that most commonly happened in the past here, it is that much more difficult to mine for gold or to mine for diamonds. And I didn't understand it all, but he explained the technical difficulties, and he also explained the much greater danger in being engaged in that type of mining. And I'll always remember what he said to me about that. He said, it takes a lot of work to get something valuable. Now, I wonder tonight, as I was reading through that fairly long passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians 15, how much of that passage did you immediately understand? And by the way, in asking that question, I'm not pointing an accusing finger at anyone. I'm beginning by pointing the finger at myself and saying, here is a passage of Scripture that I have read many times down through the years, even many times publicly, not least at funeral services. But have I totally understood what it is that God is telling me through His Apostle Paul? Sometimes when we are reading the Bible for ourselves, and I hope that you do that in your life, or when we hear the Bible read when we come along to worship, what we hear immediately resonates with us. We hear something, and we have a pretty good understanding of that passage. Straight away, we know what it is that God's Word is saying, and we can immediately begin to apply that to our lives and think about what that means for us. 
and we can do that without too much effort. But tonight, as we come to the, the second half of 1 Corinthians 15, I reckon we could compare this to gold mining or mining for diamonds. God has revealed something truly wonderful to us. These deep, deep truths about eternity and what eternity will look like for His people and be like for His people. And this should be truth that changes us. This should be truth that fills us with joy and hope in a world where there seems to be so little joy and hope at the present time. But we do need to work hard to understand this. It takes a lot of work to get something that is valuable. And that work is required not because God is deliberately trying to keep things hidden from us. Quite the opposite, in His grace, in His wonderful grace, God has chosen to reveal much to us about Himself, His character, about His plan for humanity, and particularly His plan for His people in Christ. Now, we need to work hard because these are truths that are so, so deep. And I'll use the, the term mind-blowing, incredible truths. And so, tonight we need to use the minds that God has given us to understand these things. And that begins with me. I would say that compared to many series that I've preached here in Connor over the past five years, Per sermon, I've been doing more preparation on these sermons than most. But then that extends to all of us that we would seek to use our minds and really think about what it is that the Lord is saying to us graciously in His Word. And our great confidence is that with the help of God's Holy Spirit, we're going to discover truths of real value tonight. We know that the resurrection of Jesus is part of the gospel. That good news, which is the foundation of our hope in such a hopeless world. Paul describes this message as of first importance, and that's why we have taken time to carefully consider what he is telling us and to seek to really understand it. Remember that Paul wrote this letter to a church in which some people were denying the truth of the resurrection. They were not convinced that people would be raised to life as living, breathing, real people. And that is why Paul insisted in verse 20, if you look at 1 Corinthians 15 again, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep, and surely this is one of the greatest sentences for believers in Christ to read and to hear in our lives. Because Paul is saying here, because Christ has been raised from the dead, you will too. That's the great central message of hope that Paul gives us here in 1 Corinthians 15. Because Christ has been raised from the dead. You who believe in Him will too. So, remember why Christ is described as the first fruits. 
We thought about this last week, that wonderful mouthful of food that we are given, or maybe that we, we sneak out of the pot or out of the oven before the main meal is served, which promises so much. It's the preview, it is the foretaste of what is to come, and we get this anticipation, it's going to be really good. And so, the risen Jesus is, if you like, the preview. He is the foretaste, and indeed, He is the guarantee of what lies ahead for His followers. That's why we can have a completely different approach to death in a world that fears it so much, because our Lord Jesus leads the way from death to life. And what brilliant news that is. That's good news to change our hearts and to change our lives this evening. And as we look forward to this fabulous future that we have in Christ, well, naturally, we want to know some details of what this eternity will be like. And one of the big questions that arises is, well, what will my resurrection body be like? In fact, that was a question that some in the Corinthian church were asking too. Look again at verse 35, and Paul notes the question that has come from Corinth, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? And at first glance, Paul's response might put you off asking that question or any question about the resurrection. Because look at what he says in verse 36. His initial response is, how foolish. And I don't know about you, but there's nothing that puts me off asking questions more than when I'm made to feel silly for asking a question. It happened to be first year maths and the boys model, and I asked a question, and I thought, I'm never going to ask that teacher a question again. So, what's this all about? Why does Paul say in response to this question that is being asked, how foolish? Because it seems to be a perfectly reasonable and natural question as we seek to grapple with the truth of resurrection. But to understand Paul's sharp answer, you need to understand this evening the way in which this question was asked. Sometimes we can ask a question, and it's out of genuine curiosity. We ask, how will this happen? And in the case of this subject here, we want to know, well, well, yeah, what will our resurrection bodies be like? I would love to know more about this. I'm excited about this. And I would love to know what eternity is going to be like. But sometimes people ask a question almost as an insult. It's a way of ridiculing. And maybe you've experienced that in your life. So, here is the tone in which this group aligned to the Corinthian church was asking this question. So, you mean to say that the dead will be raised? So, how exactly does that happen? 
With what kind of body will they come? And we could add tonight, if we were using the the NIV, the Northern Ireland version, that there might have been an irate. It's not the question that Paul says is foolish, so please do not avoid asking questions like this one. Don't be afraid to want to know about these things. No, it's the attitude behind the question that is foolish. Why? Because these people were casting doubt on God's power to transform. They were limiting God by the very way in which they were thinking about the subject of resurrection. And for us tonight, just as an aside, there are two ways in which we can ask the big questions of faith. And they actually represent two very different mindsets. There can be that honest desire to grow in knowledge, to grow in wisdom. And we ask questions because we really want to know. And it's never wrong to ask questions about belief, even hard ones. We think about the Psalms. The Psalms are full of hard questions, questions addressed to God in the context of worshiping Him. Why God? When God? Or the other way we can ask a question is as a cynical attempt to discredit and to pour scorn on what the Bible says. And we maybe sometimes hear those kinds of questions from friends, colleagues, loved ones in our family. And so I simply ask you tonight, in what way do you ask questions about Scripture and from Scripture? And what does that say about you? What does that say about where your heart is in terms of the Lord? But how does Paul deal with this cynical question from unbelieving people? Well, once again, he uses a picture from nature. So, let's look at that together. The second part of verse 36, Paul points out, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as He has determined, and to each kind of seed, He gives its own body. Now, this is where the hard work is required to find this thing of value. What is Paul telling us here? Well, what Paul is saying here is that our resurrection body, that body that we will receive at the final resurrection, that resurrection body will have continuity. In other words, it will have similarity with the frail body that we now have, but it will also in ways be different from our current body. So, if we think about a seed that is put into the ground, the wheat that grows from that seed is connected to it. There is obviously continuity. There is similarity, but it looks quite different from the seed. 
And Paul goes on to give other examples from nature in verses 39 to 41. But the key thing that Paul says in verse 42, after giving these examples, he states, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. Here are pictures from nature to give us a better understanding of what the resurrection will be like, what our resurrection bodies will be like. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. And I want to share with you an explanation of this verse and this picture that Paul is painting from one of the commentators, one of the the Christian writers that I've been using in preparation for this series, a book that you could get your hands on, a very accessible book published by the Good Book Company by a guy called Andrew Wilson, simply called First Corinthians for You. And this is what he says in the light of this Scripture. I want to read this to you, and please try and follow this and see what this guy is saying. My future body is to my current body what an oak tree is to an acorn, identifiably the same, and with the life of the new emerging from the corpse of the old, but at the same time greater to an unimaginable degree. If we want to begin to consider what our resurrection bodies will be like, people, they will be greater to an unimaginable degree. Our resurrection bodies will have continuity. They will have similarity with our current ones. But don't imagine there will be any limitations or any weaknesses like the ones that we have with our body now. And honestly, we cannot begin to fully imagine how great our resurrection bodies will be. Because here's the great reality about our resurrection bodies. Verse 42, it continues. Paul says of the resurrection body, it will be raised imperishable. Imperishable, that's the key word. And why I want you to think about that truth. Honestly, think about that. Your resurrection body, believer in Christ, believer in Christ, your resurrection body will be unbreakable. It will, it will not be subject to COVID or cancer or Alzheimer's or dementia. You will not be subject to anxiety or depression. It will be powerful. It will not be subject to sin and all of the struggles, the sinful struggles that we have day in, day out. It's a battle a day, the flesh and the spirit. And Paul adds in verse 49, and just as we have borne the likeness, that is the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness, the image of the heavenly man. So, looking at Jesus after His resurrection gives us some idea 
of what we can expect our resurrection bodies and life in the new creation to be like? Have you ever considered that? To consider the risen, the resurrected Jesus? Think about what we learn of Him in the Gospels, that the resurrected Jesus was physical. He had a physical body as opposed to being some kind of ghost or spirit. In fact, he, 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 he's a, he goes to lengths to explain that. In Luke 24, verse 39, he says to the disciples in their amazement, look, look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. And he goes on to say, a ghost does not have flesh and bones. As you see, I have. As you see, I have. The resurrected Jesus ate food. There are records of that. Not only that, He prepared a meal for His disciples. And I don't want to be in any way flippant or trivial tonight, but I think that's wonderful because it dispels the, 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 the very simplistic ideas we have about the new creation and about eternity where, frankly, some people imagine it to be to be something that's completely boring. Indications of, of patterns of life and as things that will be enjoyed. That continuity, but also difference with the resurrected Jesus, what appears to be the, the ability to appear and disappear suddenly so that he suddenly stood beside the disciples on the road to Emmaus. He even appeared among them in a, a room behind a locked door. And the implication that he was somehow different in his appearance because he was not immediately recognized by his disciples, as was the case in Luke 24, verse 13 following, and John 21 verse 4 following. And if we really think about this tonight, and I know this demands our concentration and we're coming towards the end, but if we really think about this tonight, all of this, all that we are hearing about the risen, the resurrected Christ, isn't it consistent with Paul's wonderful teaching here about our resurrection bodies, continuity, similarity, but also difference. Now, I want to say tonight that 1 Corinthians 15 is not a chapter from a textbook. It does not give us every single detail of what our resurrection body will be like, but everything that we do learn points to something truly amazing. This should excite us, people. If you love Jesus, if you follow Him, this should excite you tonight. And as we begin to come towards the end of this amazing chapter, next week we'll, we'll take a look at the final verse and we'll think about the difference these truths should make to our lives as followers of Jesus. But let's finish tonight by thinking about the great hope of the resurrection. 
if we are believers in Christ, it is a hope that we have in such a hopeless world. Think again about the central thing Paul has told us in this chapter. Listen to those verses one more time. Verse 21, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the firstfruits, the foretaste, the guarantee, then when He comes, those who belong to Him. And people, the meaning of that changes everything. It absolutely changes everything. This is the hope of the resurrection. It not only proves God's power, but it's something that those who belong to Christ will share in. And let's make sure that we understand this good news. Who will find this resurrection life in Christ? We'll look back at the end of verse 23. It's so clear. Those who belong to Him. And so, what that means tonight, and I feel duty-bound to say this, what that means tonight is that apart from Christ, apart from Christ, I can offer you no hope. I can offer you no good news. I can offer you no peace, no future. And as we finish, I, I know from conversations I've had with some people belonging to Connor, Christian people, when I think back to my time in Waringstown and some conversations I had with Christian people there, that they were really perturbed because they attended what was described as a humanist funeral. Maybe it was for a colleague or for a neighbor, occasionally and tragically, it was for a loved one, a family member. And what they told me was so depressing that at one point I decided to check this out for myself and go online and research this. And I want to talk about this sensitively, but the British Humanist Association has a document entitled Funerals Without God. Now, there's a hopeless statement to begin with, funerals without God. And there was a liturgy, a wording that was given in this service, and towards the end of this service, here's what it said. To everything, there is a season and a time to every purpose on earth, a time to be born and a time to die. Hang on, I recognize those words to you. Oh, yes, that's the Bible. That's God's Word in your funeral without God. But then the tragic finish, the committal at the end. Listen to this, please. Here in this last act, in sorrow but without fear, in love and appreciation, we commit the person's name, to its natural end. We commit so-and-so to its natural end.
Now that depresses me. And contrast that with these words. World death is your victory. World death is your sting. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And I don't often do this. Can we say together, Amen, to that? Amen. Amen. We're going to 